Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Catch. And welcome to How Tall Is This Dragon? Now today we are on the topic of dragons. Not the modern fantasy um, depictions that we might see, but we're specifically going to be talking about dragons in myth and in historical records across all sorts of different cultures, because they are extraordinarily prevalent. And that was one of the things that surprised me the most when I first started looking into this question of how tall is an actual dragon. I expected, I knew there was dragons in the Bible, I knew the story of St. George, I knew Chinese dragons, and I thought, well, I'll just look across a few of those. And then I started researching dragons. There are dragons everywhere. Every continent on the earth with the exception of Antarctica, has stories of dragons. So literally, wherever there are people, there are pictures imaginatively of dragons. Absolutely. Ranging from the rainbow serpent in the Australian indigenous culture to St. George and the dragon, to the Chinese dragons, to Indian dragons. Yeah, to to Quetzalcoatl, who's a dragon in the Aztec myth and mythology. Um, absolutely everywhere. And I found that you had dragons or dragon, monster, serpent, using those sort of words interchangeably a little, dragon and serpent. In fact, the Greek word for, our word for dragon comes from the Greek word dracon, which actually means serpent or sea serpent originally. So is that what we're talking about, sort of being critical about the definition of the dragon? Um, serpent, snake, that's sort of the foundation, one of the foundation pieces of it, isn't it? Absolutely. But dragons are real chimeras. They, they add all sorts of different things to them, and we'll talk more about that. But first, I found that the dragon stories fall into three main categories. You have monster dragons. Mm-hmm. Now, they can range from huge creation-sized dragons that have to be battled by storm gods down to quite small dragons that get slain by knights or saints, or in fact, North American um, tribes. Or, let's remember, squished by farmers. (laughs) Okay. We'll talk about a little bit about those, I hope, soon. Um, The depictions of of stories of of people coming up with dragons and a farmer squishing it. (laughs) (laughs) Or in fact, or then you have what I would probably best described as spirit dragons. And you find this predominantly in the Chinese and Asian um, history. Although we've got some North American dragons sort of can take upon that sort of character as well. But there's sometimes they're monsters as well. We've got this idea of a spirit dragon, which is, or oh, what are the characteristics they're like? Um, they're not necessarily malevolent, um, like uh, a, a sort of monster dragon picture. Um, they have some sort of spiritual role to play. They're in fact often benevolent and they often have magical gifts, like they often fly through magic, they have an ability to shape change, to change their size or Mm. their form. Okay. Um, And we've got the last one, which is sort of our creation dragon. Like the rainbow serpent here in Australia is a really good description of it, the huge serpent that in fact creates the rivers by sort of winding itself through the terrain. Um, or in fact, um, really interesting story in um, South America, Mayan myth, where 
there were monkeys. The man's actually have quite a complex three or four levels of creation story, but one of them, there are monkeys and they come into the cave of this dragon and the dragon breathes on them and that's how they become people. That is one of the most extraordinary like pictures of like, oh, it, it, it's almost like a... Um, What's the film that I'm think, thinking about? It where they, the tw- 2001 Space Odyssey, where they they come, the monkeys come into contact with the obelisk, and then that's what causes them to evolve into human beings. So the monkeys come into come into contact with a dragon, and that's what causes us. Maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got these three different types of dragons spread across pretty well the entire civilised and uncivilised, I suppose, world. Everywhere except Antarctica, we have dragons. And we want to talk more about those three different types over the next 10 or 15 minutes. Okay, so we're going to talk now about the sort of first rough type or category of dragon that, that we've identified, the sort of monster dragon. And I think this is one of the dragons that's most clearly shaped our sort of modern fantasy depictions of dragons. Um, and there's probably no clearer picture of this this one than in the Bible, in sort of Job 41. I'm going to read that section out because it's really exciting, imaginatively. Okay. It goes, this is from the ISV, which is sort of a slight modernised version. I won't be silent concerning his limbs his mighty strength and orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armour? Who can approach him with a bridle? Who dares to open his mouth since it is ringed with its terrible teeth? His protective scales are his pride. They lie sealed tightly together, each one so close to the other that not even air comes in between them. Each is attached to the other, grasping each other so they cannot be separated. His snorting releases releases flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of the dawn. Flames blaze from his mouth. Streams of sparking fire fly out. Smoke billows from his nostrils, like a boiling pot or burning reeds. His breath can ignite coal, and flames proceed from his mouth. So his neck is so powerful that all who meet him are terrified. There are no flaw in his body's armour. It is firmly fixed on him and unbreachable. His heart is as strong as stone. It is as hard as a lower millstone. When he rears up, the mighty are terrified. They are bewildered as he thrashes about. And I I think there's some really extraordinary parts of this picture. First of all, this dragon has legs. (laughs) First thing it notices is limbs, okay? Um, and the really clear picture of it, and this is a little bit unusual from a lot of pictures of dragons um, that we have in other mythologies and stories, is this is a fire-breathing one. It's almost because we know that the Leviathan is a creature of the deep, creature of the waters. It's almost as if this thing is like the creature that lives in an v- undersea volcano spewing magma. It's this sort of combination picture of, of fire and, and, and water. Water here. But, you know... The skin, the skin that's that's so closely interlocked, and the teeth and the uh, and the claws. This is 
this is our modern fantasy picture of a dragon. This has got to be where it's come, it comes from specifically. One of the really interesting things about that is that this is not the picture of the dragon that the medieval people had. Yeah, you would have thought. The medieval people had beasteries um, written all from everywhere from about the 9th to 13th, 14th century, which had depictions of dragons, descriptions of dragons in them. Now, these beasteries were often used for theological instruction, but despite that, they did not look to the Bible for their dragons. (laughs) And I want to read you what a medieval dragon looked like, according to the experts. The Greeks call it dracon, whence the Latin name is derived. So that it is called Draco, and this creature, often stealing forth from its caverns, mounts into the air, and the air is violently set in motion and glows around it. It is also created and has a small mouth and narrow passages through which it draws its breath and thrusts out its tongue. Moreover, its strength lies not in its teeth, but in its tail, and it injures by a blow rather than by a bite. It is harmless as to poisons. But they say poisons are not needful to this creature for dealing death, because if it has caught anyone in its coils, it kills him, from which not even the elephant is safe by the greatness of its body. Oh, the elephant and the serpent. Tell us about the elephant and the serpent. Oh, the elephant Please. and the serpent are, are just absolute enemies. So they are diametrically opposed enemies. Diametrically opposed enemies because the so elephant... this is in the medieval picture. Actually, before we go on, what was that from? What was the um, specific thing that, that you That was across? from one of the beasteries of Hugo from 1110. But you find a lot of that depiction dating back all the way back to the Roman Empire and Pliny the Elder. Yeah, sort of like, uh, I guess, a python-like picture or something like that. A python that smacks you with its tail type thing. Well, no, a python that wraps, coils its tail around you, but that also can clearly move through the air, that can fly that has in fact that can beat upon the it beats upon the elephant and bl- so often it's, blinds it's, it. it's its powers in its tail it smacks it with its tail so is that is it a gripping or is it is it actually a blow so all I'm trying to say what sort of damage is it dealing here okay it's a little unclear whether the damage is being done by the whether the striking damaging is being done by the front or the rear of the dragon it certainly uses its tail to coil and it uses its tail to strangle. So I would make a guess that it's the front part of the dragon that is, in fact, inflicting the striking damage, <laughs> which is, however, less important than the strangling and coiling and trapping damage. Okay, so it's crushing damage. Awesome, awesome. Uh, but it can also be defeated by crushing damage because what will often happen is no, no, that... No, okay. So let's, let's tell the full story here of the dragon and the elephant because this is this blew my mind this is great okay what happens is the dragon will lie in wait for the elephant it will coil itself around a tree till only its tail is hanging down looking just like a vine and if the elephant comes along unsuspectingly the dragon will strike so the it dragon will... the elephant just comes along and says, who what's this little thing here oh no it's a dragon <laughs> Well, it's clearly a python dropping from the trees. Yeah, it's cool. Go on, go on. However, it not only coils around the elephant's neck, but it coils around the elephant's legs and it trips it up. It strikes at its. Oh, so it's like it's like attacks it like the eighty eighty walkers. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. This could be could be like Star Wars inspiration here. 
They've clearly been reading stories of pythons and elephants. However, in this case, the python is the bad guy. The dragon is the bad guy. The elephant is the good guy. This is right. It's a holy dragon. And a holy elephant. It's a holy elephant versus versus the dragon. And then it strikes at its eyes and blinds it. However, oh, poor elephant. However, what a as mean the, dragon. However, as the elephant is dying, it falls on the dragon and crushes it, and their <laughs> blood mingles in the ground. Now, this blood. I am elephant. I use powers of fatness. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds this, like a really bad role playing like adventure. We're like, oh, oh, no, no, it's got you. Okay, and now, okay, and I'm now rolling, and I'm now tripping you up. Oh no, I. I am going to fall on you. Can I do that? Um, dragon, roll, roll saving throw. No. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. But you haven't even got to the treasure aspect of this because as they fall, as they both die, their blood mingles on the ground. Now, that blood is the only paint, according to Pliny the Elder, that you should use if you are depicting blood in art. So you could probably... Adventurer, having observed this, you could probably get a very good price for that blood because any other red paint is, according to Pliny, poison, should not be used. So if you want to depict some gory picture artists, you will need a dragon and an elephant. You will need to set them against each other and then you will need to collect their blood. I, I just have no words. <laughs> I, I have no words for that. <laughs> Such a good story and such a disappointing ending. It's like, oh, we're going to harvest this for capitalism. What is wrong with you, Pliny? (laughs) Okay, so on the back of that, answering the question of how tall, how big are these dragons, which is a cool thing to think about. Um, So we're talking about this elephant dragon type thing, the things that tussle together. They've got to kind of be similar sort of sizes, don't they? So sizes, although the, the elephant might be heavier, um, because he's got to be able to actually topple the dragon by grabbing its its legs, and it's got to be able to strangle it. So we're talking about an elephant-sized dragon, give or take, here. But what sizes are these sort of monster dragons? Because there are all sorts of different sizes. The first answer that I know is that the medieval and renaissance depictions of dragons are often disappointingly small. I mean, often this is, is a, a statues and whatnot of St. George um, and, the, and the dragon, or, of course, the other, other medieval dragon, which is um, St. Michael. That's right, St. Michael and the dragon, or, or like, which is an alternate form of the devil here. Um, and these are often disappointingly small. Like they could be boar size. They can maybe be up to bear size. And sometimes they're like a big dog at best. Um, if, I, I was always very disappointed looking at this. Like, That's not much of a dragon. Actually, it's interesting you mentioned about St. Michael there because you're right. I've seen pictures of St. Michael fighting off dragons that are barely bigger than a large cat. And why do you need all that armor and all those swords and armaments? I mean, it doesn't, it's, not, it's overkill for that little thing. However, the dragon in Revelations, which is the dragon St. Michael, actually ends up fighting, is large enough to strike a third of the stars out of the sky with its tail. Okay, and the stars in this circumstance are actually representing angels or angelic beings. So, like, if you view this picture, so to speak, cosmologically, it is actually striking stars. Um, it's it's galaxy-sized dragon. Okay. 
that's a big dragon. <laughs> or if you do, do, theologically, it's big enough to take out a third of the heavenly host in one swipe. Which rather makes that fight at the beginning of Lord of the Rings look fairly weak, doesn't it? You know, he was only taking out a few few lines of armies. So dragons can be that big. They can be galaxy size. Um, but then, but then you come down to your sort of more still cosmic, but more world size dragons, and that's where you come down to one of the most common dragon stories which is storm god defeats chaos dragon yeah okay so what have we got here I mean, this is particularly the um thor and jormungand story here apologies if i'm butchering the pronunciation of any of these things um i would like to apologize too because i'm sure i'm going to be butchering many pronunciations here oh. but you have these stories and they run all the way from india with vitra and indra you have Ayap and Ra, you have Tiamat and Marduk, um, you have Baal, and I can't remember the name of Baal's dragon, I'm sorry. You have Yahweh and Leviathan, you have Zeus. Well, they, and, don't, they never actually fight. They never actually fight, but Yahweh is a sky god, and he clearly is completely capable of defeating the Leviathan. Well, it's one of the pictures, yeah. Um, you have Zeus and Typhon. You you basically have this dragon, which often represents um, the chaos of the world, being defeated by a storm god who usually represents some form of order. Now, I must admit, a storm god is not what I would think of for order, but that is the way many, many cultures, particularly centering around the Middle East and spreading as far as India and into Europe um, and uh, north. Yeah, so your Nordic depictions too. Uh, so your Nordic Germanic depictions are uh, have a s- synchronicity with some of those ones, but they're kind of independent, which is interesting. So how, how big is this dragon, and, and what are its characteristics? Okay, your, your, the dragon that a storm god fights usually ranges from whale gigantean all the way up to circling the earth. Yeah, okay. So the world serpent itself is like circling the world tree. So it's actually bigger than the earth. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, you're ranging from almost real sized up to that cosmic size that that moves from world serpents a little bit of a sort of middling ground. The world serpent is large enough to be battled by a hero. Yeah, it is. It is um, small enough to be battled by a hero. Of course, a, 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 a god who can drink the sea. A god who can drink the sea. So we're talking a very large hero here. Oh, come close to drinking the sea. Okay. Um, up to the sort of cosmic wipe the skies, stars from the sky size, down to that, you know, leviathan the size of a whale, sort of much, you know, bigger than human size, bigger than that elephant-sized dragon, but still in a size that one can sort of imagine being able to see. But I think the most interesting monster dragons are those that are small enough to be defeated by some form of human or demi-human f- figure. And, I mean, there's there's dozens of these stories. As Mark's mentioned, there's St. George and the dragon, there's St. Michael, etc. But the one I discovered when in my research, which I thought was brilliant, was the one of Thakani. Now, apologise if I'm getting these names mispronounced, but she was actually an African princess. And her parents died 
when she was young. So she had to raise her two younger brothers. Now, we don't know what their names are. Oh, but they are brats. <laughs> Absolute brats. She looked after them really well. She had them trained up to be warriors. She, in fact, herself went out and slew beasts, etc. So she was brilliant. They were, and but she brought them up and then they went away to warrior training camp. Now, <laughs> literally, they have a warrior training camp. They have a warrior training camp. They've been in watching too much Disney. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe Disney has been reading too many African stories because I think this predates Disney. So they had, they went away to warrior training camp. And traditionally, when warriors graduated from warrior training camp, they would be given skins of ferocious beasts to make their armor and shields from. Now, Thakani had this covered. She had, in fact, killed a suitable number of ferocious beasts here, lions, etc. But her brothers, who were, as Mark said, absolute entitled brats, said, no, no, none of this is good enough. I want a Natabali skin. So what's an Anatabali? Like- a Natabali is a dragon. Oh, okay. A Natabali is a dragon that lives in the river. And it is covered all the time with mist. It is almost impossible to slay. In fact, going against it is seen to be a suicide mission. This did not defeat Thakani, however. With the help of a wise old woman and a magic pearl and some other warriors of her tribe who were clearly a lot less entitled than her brats of brothers. (laughs) Don't take the boys in this story. (laughs) She went in there and she, in fact, managed to defeat and slay this Natabali dragon. She dragged it out, they skinned it, and the skins were given to her brothers, who no doubt thought they were very tough. I I just can't get around them thinking, oh, I want a dragon skin to show how hard and tough I am, but you're going to slay it for me. I mean, the, the posturing involved here... <laughs> The combination of, of posturing and vanity and ego here is just extraordinary. <laughs> but this, girl, this girl is awesome. This girl She's is fantastic. amazing. And in fact, um, you do find girls in dragon slaying stories as well as men. So that's my favorite dragon slaying story. And that's probably where we finish monsters and move on to spirit dragons. Okay, so we've got a second type of dragon. They're sort of roughly identified. And this is what we're calling like a spirit dragon. Um, spirit quite specifically because they do seem to have a place in the cosmic hierarchy like literally they're at the top of it Um, they're often figures of kind of enlightenment like you will talk to the dragon and and they will tell you important things so this affects their roles in stories too and of course the the classic depiction of this is the Chinese Lung dragon Lung I think is just the straight up word for it. Um, Kat, you've got a description you're going to share about that. Yep, there's this wonderful description of a dragon. They have antlers resembling those of a stag, his head that of a camel, his eyes those of a demon, his neck that of a snake, his belly that of a clam, his scales (laughs) that of a carp, his claws those of an eagle, his soles those of a tiger, his ears those of a cow. Upon his head, he has a thing like a broad eminence, a big lump, called Kimu. If a dragon has no Kimu, he cannot ascend to the sky. Okay. So these dragons, 
like they've got this this kimu. Again, apologies for butchering this word. And the kimu causes them to fly. So it's like clearly they fly by magic. Either they've got this magic thing embedded in them, or it's a magical item that they picked up somewhere. <laughs> Um, it's certainly dragons, Chinese dragons here, and the spirit dragons, Chinese dragons, are our best and our strongest example. So, but there's of. quite a lot of these dragons, like in in a number of Eastern cultures, Indian and Chinese and Japanese, whatever. Um, you even see some of that in the representation of the red and white dragon in Wales and England, because you see there dragons that are not actually monsters to be slain, but dragons that are actually protective and representative of the countries themselves and where they fight, they fight against each other mm. rather than against humanity. But coming back to the Chinese dragons, they are spirits of the air. Mm. And so they all fly. Now, most of them don't, in fact, have wings. Sometimes you have wings, and wings are something that you, on dragons, sometimes they have them, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have one set, sometimes they have two sets. But with the... Who has um, two sets? Oh, a number of Chinese dragons have two sets. There's a description of a devil dragon in um, medieval manuscript that has two sets of wings. Two sets of wings are not, in fact, in common. If you think about... Is that like a butterfly or some sort of weird insect-type dragon? No, no, no. They just have... Well, they've got quite a long body, you see, so they just... Place the wings along the... Extra wings. They just place the wings wings along the body. (laughs) 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 It's only a very funny-looking dragon, that one. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, because like the, the, the Chinese dragon, too, um, had to be depicted with its face upwards. Because um, like if it was face was upwards, it could ascend the heavens. There's the enlightenment like theme in the dragon, yet again, type thing. You know, but it couldn't if its face was down. So clearly, the way that it moves is not actually the snake through the air thing like we see in... Um, um, never-ending story. It's literally it's a helicopter. <laughs> it's got these lots of different sets of wings. It goes and just literally goes straight up. <laughs> I'm not sure because Chinese yeah. dragons. Often That's not canonical, but I think it's fun. <laughs> Chinese dragons don't often, in fact, usually don't have wings. But one of the things you do see there very strongly, and you see this across both monster and spirit dragons is this sense of being a chimera this mm. sense of being a combination of different yeah you animals. had all these different animals pointed out like it was like cows and like okay this is a demon's eyes <laughs> like okay now that's not uncommon mm. the snakes that were seen the dragons that were seen apparently by alexander and his macedonian um, troops when they invaded across asia had in fact blazing eyes as well and you you get that's a really common depiction of any dragon depicted across most of asia um, all the way from from in fact istanbul through to china is these glowing eyes it's almost a spiritual energy in this case it seems and one of the aspects of that is that these dragons can often shape change Um, it's quite common for them to be able to have a human form um the Chinese dragons apparently can change their size to from as small as a silkworm. No, no, I'm getting to the Japanese in a minute. The Chinese ones can do it from as small as a silkworm to as large as the universe. Oh, okay, right. They do like to go one better than everybody else. That is a flex. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Japanese dragon can become so small that it becomes invisible. 
which is, I think, a much better way of managing invisibility than the old just be invisible because it avoids all of those people bumping into you problems. Or does it? Because the people can still step on you. So, like, do you have, like, Ant-Man powers, like, in that small thing you can chuck a truck over or something like that? Or do you actually get squished? But it's really engaging, the idea of like, okay, I'm going to get around and not be seen by going, became really itty-bitty. They are the Ant-Man dragon, as far as I'm concerned. I think if you become that small, you are in fact too small to be stepped on. So it wouldn't be a problem. But I do... But literally, you pass through the atomic boundaries. You pass through the atomic boundaries. <laughs> this is probably how you become invisible. Um, I have dragons that can pass through atomic boundaries without doing that. So I don't see why becoming small, oh, you couldn't do that. That's cool. But the other thing that really characterizes a, what are we calling a spirit dragon as opposed to a monster dragon is this ability to communicate, mm. is this ability to be part of the narrative story as a protagonist, not just an antagonist. Okay, or a guide or something that we have to get wisdom of. And it's really interesting when these types of dragons get mixed up too because um, we have... We have two sort of different ways of seeing that they get mixed up. Well, the first way we have is the Persian dragon, which is really the, um, the the Chinese dragon shape and picture, what they look like, the physicality. However, um, their role in the story is exactly like we'd come to know of the monster dragon. Okay, it's it's it doesn't communicate. It's there to be destroyed, and that's a important part of the hero's journey is to do that. Now, but, right now, in our modern fantasy, we have the opposite of that, don't we? We've got our modern fantasy, often we've got dragons that might be pets or dragons that will be guides or that are our friends, but the bodies, the bodies are of this European monster dragon type type, okay? So we've actually got these elements being played with um, and mixed up in different ways as well. And to mix up elements like that is exactly what dragons are about because from the beginning dragons have been a serpent with legs or with wings they have been a creature with the wings of a bat and the claws of a cat they've been all these different things and I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes these two most common types of dragon both the spirit dragon and the monster dragon is this chimera quality that they have this quality that has come out of imagination i think mm, and, and we've got we've still got the third depiction of the dragon um our like um creation dragon but you know the, what we know about that is much more sparse okay they tend to be huge and they and they're involved in the narrative as actually protagonists creating the story they tend to be somewhat benevolent um, even when the Remus haven't even killed somebody, it kills a couple of people and then it says, oh, I better make a rainbow. Oops, my bad. Sorry, like, <laughs> to cheer everybody up. Okay, so they're roughly benevolent and part of creation. Um, but they're probably the least common type of dragon too in terms of depictions. And they're, Yes, and they're the least complex. They often are depicted as a serpent um, without the same element of chimera quality that you see in the other two types of dragons. So we have our three different types of dragons. We have our creation dragon um, that helps be part of our, of our original myth and is actually a, a critical character in creating the world. We have our, our, our spirit dragon um, that is 
kind of a guide often, or maybe a bit in charge of the celestial hierarchy to a decent degree. Um, and we've got our monster dragon, which is sort of the most familiar to modern fantasy readers' depictions of what a dragon is. It's the dragon that is the enemy that must be destroyed or taken down, that it's a threat to life and limb, must be taken down by the hero. But we can say a few things about these dragons. They, they are, the first thing we can say about all of them is that they tend to, except maybe the creation serpent things, they tend to be chimeras. They're, they're, a, they're a combination of different animals, you know, um, cat and snake, so snake's critical, cat and snake and, and bird or, or winged animal type thing, or completely different animals in the Chinese case. Um, and the second thing we can say about all these types of dragons is that you find dragon stories everywhere. From um, from Aztec, South American, Australia, Asia, Europe, um, the Norse, North America, you find stories of dragons everywhere. And that's what we want to discuss in our ne- next podcast. Yeah, we're going to ask why. And look at all of the... Somewhat ridiculous and hilarious, like suggestions for why dragons are, um, or why dragons have uh, exerted this sort of influence on us, like symbolically and, and narratively, um, and hopefully talk a little bit about real dragon sightings. <laughs> Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. So you've been listening to how tall is this dragon?